get back, we'll get jump back in. And uh, this coming Wednesday, Tawan will be sharing, and then uh, we'll get back into our Proverbs study on Wednesdays. But Galatians chapter 3 this morning, we'll pick it up where we left off. By the way, wasn't that some good worship this morning? You know, Second Chronicles, when Jehoshaphat uh, uh, said, let's, let's sing to set ambushes. I think we set some ambushes this morning. And I believe that the worship has set the right tone for us to get into the Word of God. And so I hope you're uh, ready. Galatians chapter 3, we'll pick up with verse 10. I'll be reading um, just verses 10 through 14, and then we'll read uh, verses uh, 15 through 18 just a, few, just a little bit later. Starting with verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no, just, that, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we open your word now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would anoint this time. Uh, Anoint me, Lord, to use your word in a way that would honor and glorify you and you alone. We pray that you would uh, draw all of us into your presence. Lord, that uh, you would drive out anything in this room that is not of you. Lord, that we would have our minds centered as we sang on Jesus and him alone. Lord, teach us, instruct us, comfort us, convict us. Whatever we need, you know. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There was a Sunday school teacher talking to uh, the kids and just trying to kind of get their understanding of what it really means to be saved or or what does God require for salvation. And so the Sunday school teacher was asking the kids some questions and, and said to the kids, now if I sold my house and my car and had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would that get me into heaven? The children said, no, no, they're all saying, no, that wouldn't do it. How about if I cleaned the church every day and I mowed the yard and kept everything neat and tidy, then would I get in heaven? Again, the children all screamed no. And he said, how about if I read my Bible and prayed for hours every day? No, they all yelled. Still they shouted no. How about if I became a missionary and went and took the gospel to difficult parts of the world? No, 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 that, that, that wouldn't get you into heaven. Well, the teacher continued, how then can I get to heaven? A five-year-old boy shouted out, you got to be dead. <laughs> well, he's only half right. Unless the rapture comes, then you don't have to be dead either. But he's only half right. But the Galatians, well, they were not even half right. They were now trusting in the works of the law to get to heaven. Uh, there is a dying to self when you come to Christ. And so that, in that respect, we all die there. But the Galatians, if you've been following along in our study, they had been deceived. 
they had come to Christ, and I believe they were born again, but they had gotten off the track and had started to employ a works-based salvation and had no longer thought that just the simple liberty in Jesus through faith in Christ was the source of their salvation. So they had been told that they had to start to perform all these different things, and, and then and only then would God accept them. Now, it's true that once we get saved, we will begin to do the works that God set before us. I mean, I'm, I'm not preaching today uh, because it was something I ever desired to do. Uh, if you read and prayed this week, you probably didn't care about that before you got saved. Those are works that come after salvation, but we're not doing them to be saved. We're doing them because we're saved. Make sense? We come here to worship not to earn God's favor, but become to be in his presence, to be shaped and molded more and more into his image. If you're taking notes this morning, uh, as you see on the screen, I've titled our time in the Word this morning, The Promise of Christ, The Promise of Christ. And we'll see as we get into verses 15 through 18, this, uh, this promise that um, is proclaimed here. But the first thing we want to look at, uh, starting in verses uh, 10 uh, through 13, uh, only two bullets today. We have the Lord's Supper, so be, uh, we want to leave time for that. Uh, but the first thing I want to look at is what I've titled The Law's Limit. Uh, the law's limit. Uh, you ever get like a, a coupon that says limit uh, one visit per customer or something like that? And so, uh, but if you think about the law, though, uh, it, it, it's not, God does not give you a ticket that says limit 10 sins and you can get to heaven. Limit one sin and you can get to heaven. Limit uh, things like that. The law has a very, very strict limitation, and that's what we want to look at first. So to return to that strict limitation uh, is a very foolish thing. Now, the law itself, the law clearly came from God. Would we all agree with that? Matter of fact, all laws, if you look at the United States, uh, the founding fathers of this nation, laws were built uh, on premise basically on the divine law. Now, without question, man has taken God's divine law and messed it up plenty of times. Uh, But if you just follow God's law, it is a great way to make law. Because if you follow God's laws, they're going to be fair and just. If you start to uh, inject humanity into it, it's a whole different story. But the law clearly came from God, and the law that came from God, it's pure. It's holy. It's just. It's good. Every command of God is beneficial to us personally, and for society collectively. You agree with that? Every command that God gives will always, God would never give us something that would be harmful to us. Other leaders will give you plenty of things that will be harmful, but God would never give us anything harmful. Everything God gives us in his law is beneficial to us personally. And then society collectively. You think about that, any of the laws... Uh, you know, if God gives a law that says, thou shalt not steal. You know, if everybody doesn't steal, can you imagine how much nicer society is? You don't have to ever worry about an armed robbery. You and I could stop buying things that uh, cost us money like ADT security systems. We could stop buying LifeLock because they would not steal your credit card information. 
Do you realize that if everyone on planet Earth says, hey, God's law is good, I am going to follow that and no longer steal, the benefit is your police force drops in half. Your court system drops. Do you see how this is good? It blesses us personally, but if a group of people say, hey, we believe God has given this, thou shalt not steal, comes from God, that's something if we all follow, everyone benefits. But Paul states in verse 17 here, if you look, we didn't read verse 17, but I do want to draw your attention to it. Uh, In verse 17, he said, I say that the law, which was 430 years later, now that's 430 years after Abraham. We talked about this for just a minute last week. But the Mosaic law, it came 430 years after Abraham. Remember, Abraham was the starting point of the Jewish nation, the starting point of the nation of Israel. The law was given to Moses, the tablets and the ten, uh, of the Ten Commandments, that law, which was not the entirety of all the law for uh, Israel, but that was the basis of all the law. And actually, Jesus said even more than that, it, it was really hung on two things. What? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The ten hang on the two, and all the other laws hang on the ten. But that came, God's divine law, it was, or the, the Mosaic law, I should say, that came 430 years after Abraham. But God's divine law of righteousness, well, that was evident well before the stone tablets, well before Mount Sinai and Moses. Think about it. Cain murdering Abel was murder well before murder was named as the Sixth Commandment. True? There was no Sixth Commandment. Well, there, there, was a, there was the commandment, but there was not the codified law of the tablets. That comes much later. But when Cain murders Abel, it already was murder. Noah, uh, when he comes off the ark after the flood, was instructed on the requirement of capital punishment for murder immediately after the flood. So again, we see God emphasizing that that specific command, murder, was sin. It was sin in the garden. It was sin after the flood. And of course, it would be codified in the law of the Ten Commandments. Noah, by the way, well, he was 400 years before Abraham, and then Abraham, he was about 400 years before Moses. Isn't that coincidental? Noah, Abraham, Moses. But the law doesn't come until God gives it, at least the law for Israel, I should say, uh, until God gives it to Moses there in Mount Sinai after they have come up out of Egypt. Now, understand that some of the law that was given to Israel was specific to Israel. But the law that was given to Israel was beneficial to them and their families. It was beneficial to them in society as a whole. And to the individuals, in what way? Well, for the individual, uh, it would help the individual remember the holiness of God. Because you and I forget all the time about the holiness of God, don't we? I don't care how much time you've gone to church. All you have to do is work an eight-hour day, and you'll have forgotten everything I said today. I I know we're in Galatians somewhere. It starts with a number. Um, It could have been a two or a three or something like that. Or you read, you did your devotions, you prayed. You can't even remember what you prayed about that morning or what you read. So God gives us, he has to have these reminders 
in front of us. And the law is a perfect reminder it was to Israel that God was holy. Remember, the essence of God at the throne is holy, holy, holy. So the law was beneficial in a larger uh, setting for all of Israel, but even the individual. The fear of the Lord, when you think about the holiness of God, the fear of the Lord was then and still is the beginning of wisdom. Once you understand that God really is the authority, then we humble ourselves, and then he gives us wisdom and peace. But he does not give that. God resists the proud, and he gives what? Grace to the humble. The law, in addition to it being functional to the nation of Israel, to their health as a society, uh, in addition to its reminder that God was holy and he was their provider, it also served as a light and a witness to the other nations that Israel was set apart for the service of God. So remember when God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, they were to be a peculiar people. They had dietary laws that nobody else had, which we now, you heard the term kosher, all of these things. They had laws that governed that they, remember that God originally didn't want them to have a king. They got way off the rails when they wanted a king. God was their king. God says, you don't want a king. They said, yes, we do. And mankind still says, we want a king. I don't understand that. Because God says, kings will tax you and do this and do that, and they'll, they'll oppress you. And God, they, No, we still want one. But under the law, they were a peculiar people, uh, not peculiar that they were weird, but that they had been given specific instructions on how to live, that they would be a witness to the nations. And ultimately, God was going to bring them to the promised land. They would build a temple. They would invite all the nations to come and worship the true and living God. That all got off track because they spun around the desert for 40 years, right? Because they, even then, they resisted the law of God. They were stiff-necked even to what he had called them to. We can understand that too, can't we? Stiff-necked in resisting what God's called us to. But in a spiritual sense, today, we as born-again believers, we're a witness too. We've been set apart. That God set us apart to be a light and a witness of the indwelling of not the law, but the indwelling of faith. The indwelling of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't always seem appealing to the unsaved world any more than it was always appealing to the Canaanites or the Egyptians or anyone else say, hey, do you want to abide by the laws of the true and living God? They were like, no, we want to worship Isis, Ashtoreth. We want to have immorality. We want to do whatever we want. We want to have debauchery and large parties and all that stuff, and your God doesn't allow that stuff. Well, the same is true today. You tell someone, hey, uh, I gave my life to Christ. I get to go to church on Sunday. They're like, boring. We're lighting up the grill. We're getting ready for the New York Giants versus the Dallas Cowboys and all this stuff, and you're stuck singing a hymn? No, no, but, but I have the, the law of faith in me now that I actually am drawn to these things. And even though the world is not always, these things don't always appeal to the world, it still is a light and a witness. And believe it or not, people are still observing from a distance that light that comes. And it comes out of you and me, but they were observing that light that came out, of, came out of Israel. And don't you know that some people, like Rahab and Jericho, she was actually attracted to their love for God, right? 
So believe it or not, God will use what seems to be, oh, no one will ever want to come to this. But when they see that everything they're doing never brings them peace anyway, then they're like, maybe, just maybe, what God has set apart really is the right way. So the law was holy. It was beneficial to society. It was a reminder of the sovereignty of God. It was a witness to the nations. But the purpose of the law, as it relates to the heart of man, the purpose of the law, as it relates to the heart, we won't look at that until we get to verse 19. We won't talk about that today. There is a very specific kind of arrow that's on the tip of the law that we'll look at when we get to verse 19. But here, Paul states that for all the law's benefits, and clearly the benefits individually to society, there's one major problem for those that endeavor to keep the law. And this is what the Galatians were now trying to do. They wanted to return to Mosaic law because they were told that that was the way to be saved and to please God. Well, there's one major problem to returning to the law. It requires complete perfection. That's a bummer, isn't it? You would no more find a perfect person today as you would have found a perfect person that could completely fulfill the Mosaic law. Here's what you would find, and and this is what Jesus ran into when he walked uh, the Holy Land, and he would meet people that were following the law. He would meet people that followed the law, and they really believed they were keeping it. He would ask, I remember the rich young ruler, have you done this, have you done this? Yeah, I've done all that stuff. I've I've aced it. I scored 100% on the test. Here's what you'd find. You would find plenty of Israelites, if you went back to the time of the law, you would find plenty of Israelites, people of, of, of Jewish lineage, that never forsook the Sabbath. They would not miss the Sabbath. Check. They did not miss the Sabbath. They wouldn't just blow church off like Americans do, like it's nothing. Eh, I got something else to do. I got to record this or I got to work on this project. No, no, they, they knew that to forsake the Sabbath was actually a death penalty. That was what was given out. That didn't always happen. In fact, it rarely happened. But that could have been, uh, that could have been enforced. They didn't forsake the Sabbath. You would find Israelites that never took God's name in vain. You and I work around people that use God's name all in vain all the time, don't you? It's one of their favorite words. It's the way to emphasize a sentence. It's the way to say a show was cool. It's a way to say that was a horrible call by the referee. Use God's name. Right? You would never hear a devout Israelite Jewish person in ancient times using God's name in vain. Matter of fact, the rabbis wouldn't even write the name of God. They didn't own little idols. The carved images that the Egyptians had or the Greeks had or the Romans had or the Babylonians had, they wouldn't own these little carved images. They never murdered anyone. And matter of fact, I hope no one in here has ever murdered anyone. They would not commit adultery. They would not go and take someone else's spouse. They would try and keep all these things. And all these things, you would meet hundreds and even thousands that had kept every one of the things I just mentioned. But what about the things you couldn't see? Did they ever covet in their mind? 
Had they ever withheld the truth just a little bit in a conversation? Did they ever love anything even a tiny bit more than God for just a moment? We're all guilty of that, aren't we? Had they ever lusted even one single time in their mind? See, the outward parts of the law, they're very visible and easier to keep. Not that they're easy to keep. I don't think it's easy to keep the Sabbath every single Sunday and all those things, but they would. They were rigorous at those things. But inside the mind, they were lawbreakers, and God knew it, and they knew it. That area, everyone, both then and now, is guilty. Even the outward parts aren't easy to keep to perfection. Israel, as a nation state, they were under the law for 1,500 years when Christ came. At 1,500 years by the time Jesus came, they had been under the Mosaic law. And in that 1,500 years, they had broken the law collectively as a people far more than they'd ever kept it. They were lawbreakers, but so were we as nations and individuals. And Paul says here, uh, it's clear, he says, Cursed is everyone who does, in verse 10, who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is everyone. You live with a cloud of condemnation trying to keep every single thing in the law, and you can convince yourself that you've done it, but deep down in your heart you know you haven't. It's cursed to everyone who has to keep all of this. And he says in verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law on the side of God. It is evident that just shall live by faith. Paul says here, it's clear and obvious that nobody's justified or found righteous, that is, according to the law. That nobody passes the perfection test. Nobody can say, yeah, I've never even for a second loved anything more than God. And for this reason, those who are just are justified by the Lord. It can only come through faith, Paul said. Remember back in, in verse 6 of chapter 3, same, just a couple verses forward, uh, go back, I mean, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted for counted him as righteousness, it was believing in what God had said. It was the righteousness. And um, The limitation of the law is that one is required to keep it perfectly. Not a single blemish. In this respect, we're all severely limited, aren't we? We know that we've failed in this. We've broken God's laws even before we understood them, right? You know, a child, before a child is even taught what is right and what is wrong, they've already broken the law. They've already lied. They've already taken something that didn't belong to them. And even after we understand God's commands, we still fall short. And wouldn't you agree that we accidentally sin? We have, now, we do sin on purpose. There's sins of omission and commission. Commission is I meant to do it, and I don't care. I'll suffer the consequences later. Omission is I didn't even know that I was sinning. So we have accidental sin, then we have those sins that are on purpose. But you and I, because we're we have the flesh in us, we sin even when we're not trying to sin. Right? Having a great day, and all of a sudden you get jealous out of nowhere about something. Right? That's your sin nature. 
having a great day, and you lose your temper in traffic out of nowhere. You were, you were I'm going to have a great day. I'm not going to have any bad feelings towards anything. Move your car, you jerk. Day is over. No. But under the law, it's constant condemnation. It's constant condemnation. I, you know, they had to go and do animal sacrifices and all these things. But then it comes to Jesus. Look at, he says, the just shall live by faith. Um, verse 12, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Then in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. But for Jesus, you would live in constant condemnation. And if you're not saved, you are still there and you need to come to Christ. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. You'll have to go left. Um, it's near the end of the Old Testament. Second to last book. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Then comes Matthew in the New Testament. Second to last book is Zechariah. Look at Zechariah chapter 3 for just a second. Great picture of kind of, uh, this picture is of the nation state of Israel, but it's also a personal picture that I think you and I can relate to. And it starts in verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3. Great hearing these pages turn. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel Lord. And look at this picture. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not brand plucked from the fire? By the way, you and I are brands plucked from the fire. We are on our way to hell, and God plucked us from the fire. Satan still hates us and still is standing at the throne of God, constantly accusing. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and he was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those, who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. Now the picture here is, Joshua, by the way, is a real individual. This is not the Joshua that led the children of Israel into the promised land that came after Moses. This Joshua was the high priest that came with the first uh, exiles that came back from Babylon, back to resettle Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. You remember the name Zerubbabel. They came back with Zerubbabel. Joshua was a godly man. He was a high priest, and he was the high priest that came back to reinstitute all the ceremonial aspects of the, uh, of the priesthood that would take place in Jerusalem that was taking place before the temple was destroyed. So he comes back. And as he comes back, even though he's a godly man, the picture shows that he's covered with filthy robes. He's representative of the nation-state of Israel, that the nation-state of Israel is covered in filthy robes. We prayed for our country. As a pastor, our nation is covered with filthy robes. God sees the abortion. He sees the immorality. He sees the uh, just rampant... Pride and greed and all the things, but he saw it in Israel too, and he had judged Israel for it. But 
collectively, God ends up giving Israel what? Grace and forgiveness. And he changes their garments of ashes and gives them clean garments of mercy. And in salvation, we, we receive the same thing. There's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. We couldn't do enough to say, if we work really hard, we can clean these garments. Notice the picture. Joshua is standing up in heaven. There's no way for him to clean these garments. Satan's there accusing him, basically saying, you need to throw Joshua and all of Israel into hell with me. Because Satan, that's where he's going to be. And he basically stands before God night and day. Uh, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And he's saying, Tim does not deserve to go to heaven. And God says, you're right, he doesn't. But I gave him clean garments through my son Jesus. And that's what he says to you. Satan says, well, so-and-so, Susie or Sally or Jenny or whatever, Jim, I hope those aren't your names. And if they are, but that's okay too because you stand, before, you stand before the Lord and Satan's there to say, they deserve to go to hell. I saw them lie this week. I saw them do this. I saw them do that. They're guilty. And God says, Yes, but they put their faith and trust in me, and I cleanse them daily. Do you see the picture here of heaven? I mean, Satan hates grace. He hates mercy. He wants us all under condemnation. Turn back to Galatians. Um, These clean garments, though, they were secured, as it says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he's become the curse for us. These clean garments were secured by a perfect Savior who hung on the very trees he created. Think about that. Jesus created the tree that he hung on, and he bled and died that you and I could be free, could be forgiven, and all Satan's condemnation, he can take it with him when he goes to hell, but you don't have to go there with him. Because he hung on a tree and suffered and died. How can we take light what Jesus did? How can we consider everything else in our life more important than Jesus? Ask yourself that. But we do. We find everything else is more important. It's not. When we get to heaven, Jesus said, why did you think those things were so much more important than what I did for you? I saved you to be a light and a witness as I called Israel. Dr. Francis Rowley He was a dentist's son, a star student. He was born in the summer of 1854 in Hilton, New York. As a young man, he felt God's call into the ministry, and he was ordained in 1878. He pastored churches in Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, and Illinois. Dr. Rowley later said, We were having a revival at First Baptist Church in North Adams, Massachusetts in 1886 the third year of my pastorate there, which was one of the richest and most blessed experiences of my entire ministry. I was assisted by a young Swiss musician by the name of Peter Bellhorn, who suggested that I write a hymn for which he would compose the music. The following night, this hymn, I Will Sing of the Wondrous Story, came to me without any particular effort on my part. And this is the words. He says, I will sing of the wondrous story of Christ who died for me, how he left his throne in glory for the cross of Calvary. Jesus left that throne to come to Jerusalem, 
That same city that had rejected him, he said, how I long to gather you, but you were not willing. That same city that rejected and trying to live by the law, tried to keep the law, he came to die cursed on a tree that they could be set free, that you and I could be set free. And this is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we see now the law's limit, but we see in verse 14, he says that the blessing, why did Jesus do this? Why did he come? Why did he die? Well, not only salvation which is first and foremost, but that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's read on, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. I'll explain what that means in just a second. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He does not say to his seeds, as are many, but as one to your seed who is Christ. And this I say, verse 17, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should, be make, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What does all that mean? Well, let's take a look at the only the second bullet point today. The law, we looked at the law's limit. Let's look at faith's blessing. The law, it's restrictive as a straitjacket. In the sense of, if you try and keep it, eventually you just realize that it's stifling. It's great for society, it's great for all, but personally you realize that you're constantly a lawbreaker. But then comes faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that liberty, being set free. Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you're what? Free indeed. You're freed from the weight of the law. You're freed from the perfection of the law because Christ has kept it to perfection. And so your perfection is in the blood of Jesus Christ. How does all that work? I don't understand. I really don't. When we get to heaven, I'll know why, how this, all this transfer works. I just know it does. And that's what faith is. But faith's blessing, we want to look... Um, Because of Jesus Christ, because of his perfection, because of his sacrifice, and because of his victory over what? Over death, over sin, and over Satan. Because of those those victories that he won at the cross and with the resurrection, because of his perfection, because of his sacrifice, only his blood could cover sin. All the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. Other human beings couldn't do it. Only his blood. So once you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, you have received the only covering for all the law breaking, and that's faith's blessing. We want to look at a couple things as we come to a close here this morning, four that that are enumerated here uh, in the text that Paul covers that we receive through salvation. Because Jesus hung and died, and because he rose from the dead, you and I can receive these four things that Paul enumerates. The first one is chosen, accepted by God. He says in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come upon who? The Gentiles in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Chosen and accepted. 1 Peter 2.9, uh, the apostle Peter says, but you are a chosen generation. Chosen. God has chosen us individually. 
Ephesians 1.16, he made us accepted in the beloved. He made us accepted. He accepted us. God chose us, and he accepted us. You've heard stories of people that, you know, you've watched documentaries, and, and you'll see some uh, daughter that just is crying and say, my parents just rejected me. My family rejected me. You'll see a young person that says, the, the, the kids at school rejected me. God does the opposite. He accepts. He not only accepts, but he personally chooses. He chooses a Zacchaeus. He chooses the woman at the well. He chooses the thief on the cross. And not only he chooses them, but then he accepts them. And not because they're blood relatives of Abraham. No, it says the Gentiles here. In other words, Abraham, he does have Jewish offspring that are, from a DNA perspective, they are Jewish ethnically. But the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham are of all colors, of all ethnicities. Make sense? That's why God said to you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Regardless of whether you're Jewish by blood, you're a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham. God accepts You know, the kids sing that song, Father Abraham Had Many Sons. There is spiritual truth to that song. It's not just fun to sing. It actually has spiritual truth. We can be, any one of us here, a member of God's chosen people. Anyone can be a a member of God's chosen people because Jesus died on the cross. And by the way, did God choose you or did you choose God? Yes. But he was the initiator. Does that make sense? Yes. God chose you, and you chose him, but he was the initiator. And this is, this is easy to understand um, in one sense. In this room, I see couples all over the place. One of you was the original initiator to the relationship. One of you came up and said, I'd like to take you out to dinner. The other one says, I'm not sure I want to go. Right? <laughs> no, I'm a lot of fun. You're going to really enjoy this. You know, I'm not sure you're going anywhere in life. You know, that's what my wife probably thought when she first saw me. Um, but someone was the initiator to the relationship. God is the initiator of the relationship, but you still had to say yes or no to the relationship. Right? God is the initiator. He initiated with Abraham. He said, Abraham... Come to a land I will show you. Abraham could have said, no thanks, I like it here in Ur. But he said, okay. God was the initiator. Abraham was the responder. Did God choose Abraham? Did Abraham choose God? Yes. So we can be chosen and accepted. The second thing he says, he says here in verse 14, in Christ Jesus. Gentiles, in Christ Jesus. That little in is important. We are placed in into Christ. In um, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only lives in us, but we live in him. He said that. He said, abide in me and I in you. Uh, We're baptized into Christ, into his body. That's why we call the church the body of Christ. We are all in his body. We're brought into Christ. 
The third thing in the verse 14, that we might receive what? The promise of the Spirit. The fourth thing that we receive in believing faith. The promise of the Holy Spirit, he says it in verse 14. Through what? Through faith, not through works. You don't work for the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit by believing faith. I believe, God, that you came to die. Will you place your Holy Spirit within me? You can't make God do it. You ask him to do it. And, of course, he's faithful and just to do that. It says in uh, Romans 8 9, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So if someone says, well, I'm saved, I just don't have the Holy Spirit. Whoa, that's a problem. If you're saved, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You should have the Holy Spirit now convicting you of things, comforting you, telling you, no, 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 you can't just chew someone out on the phone anymore. No, you can't do that anymore. You can't go there anymore. I remember when I was first saved, no one had to tell me certain things. I'm like, oh, whoa, we can't go there anymore. We, we find missionaries tell the stories all the time all over the world where they win people to Christ, and immediately people, things they've done forever, they say, we feel like we can't do this anymore. No one told them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit indwells. The Holy Spirit says, you can't watch that TV show anymore. But it's really popular. Yeah, but it's garbage. It doesn't matter if it's popular. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now. And to do the things the Spirit says not to is does what? Quenches the Holy Spirit. The same faith whereby we, accepted, uh, we were accepted by God and placed into Christ, into his body, is the same faith that receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, before Jesus uh, ascended, before he ascended to the throne, uh, he said to the disciples, it, well, actually before uh, he finally goes back up into heaven, uh, just a little bit before he said, I breathe on you the Holy Spirit. That's when they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Later they receive the baptism of the Spirit, but first they receive that indwelling of the Spirit. And then the last thing that Paul mentions here, it's actually found in verses 15 through 18. I know that, as Peter says, the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Sometimes when Paul writes, you think, was that, was that written by an attorney uh, or what? I mean, that, that, that seems like a lot of uh, heavy old English language or something. Of course, there was not old English then. But he says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. So what he's saying here is that, hey, even when mankind, even when flawed human beings make a covenant, it's understood that the covenant or the contract can't be changed in the middle of the term. So if you sign a lease for your apartment, you know that everyone is bound by the terms of it. You, you don't change it midstream. And he said, so that's understood, that once a contract or a covenant is set in place, it's not breakable. And this was especially true of, of kings in those days who would seal something, and it was sealed so it couldn't be altered. That was why uh, Daniel had to be thrown in the lion's den. Remember that the, uh, the Persian, once there was a decree made, it was sealed. It was a done deal. Even the king couldn't go back on his own word. So this, uh, Paul says, this, no one annuls or, or changes or adds to this covenant. But to Abraham, Paul reminds us that the covenant that was given to Abraham was a promise by the voice of God. That God doesn't need to write it down. His voice You ever say a man is as good as his word, right? God really is as good as his word. Most people, all of us have broken our word at some time 
or another. But God doesn't break his word. His word is settled forever in heaven. Now, to Abraham and his seed, he says singular here, the seed is what? The seed is Christ. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, God said, I will send the seed and he will crush the serpent's head, although the serpent will bruise the heel. A heel wound does not kill, but a head wound does. And Jesus would actually crush Satan, his seed, the seed that would come through Eve, which would all the way come through Mary, and the bloodline of David would crush Satan and crush the curse of sin. That seed was promised, but it would pass through Abraham, because Abraham was given that promise when he didn't even have children. Remember, he didn't have Isaac yet. He had to be thinking, oh, God, um, do you have any idea how old I am? Do you have any idea how old Sarah is? This promise cannot happen unless it happens like yesterday. And God says, be patient, I will bring about a miracle. And then so Sarah's birth with Isaac was kind of a foreshadowing miracle that Mary's was even a greater miracle, right? But the seed would come from the Holy Spirit and then the seed would bring forth Christ. But the seed wouldn't just bring forth Christ. Then Christ would have to fulfill why he came and to go all the way to the cross, be buried, raised from the dead. And then the promise, at that point, the promise would be fulfilled. But unlike you and I, when we make a promise, we can't always keep all of our promises. God keeps the promise. And all those that believe on him receive the covenant inheritance, and that's the last thing we see here uh, that Paul brings up. He says in verse 18, for the inheritance is of the law, or for, for if the inheritance of the law, it is no longer a promise. But Paul's saying God made the promise before the law that all who believe receive the promise not because of the law, but because of faith. So if you're saved, you have a covenant inheritance that you did not earn, you received as a gift of grace. Colossians 1.12. Thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It's a thank you, not I earned this. We are partakers of the inheritance because of grace. We have this fulfilling of the inheritance the, the fulfilling of the covenant, he says, he mentions here um, this inheritance and this covenant. Uh, Jesus was the promise that we receive. We receive him in dwelling. The law, even though the law had its period of time, the law didn't nullify the promise. The promise was before the law. The promise comes after the law. And all who trust in Christ by faith will receive this inheritance. But unlike a company that goes bankrupt or a bank that can become insolvent or a company that, uh, or a government that com- becomes corrupt and changes, God's inheritance is guaranteed from now through eternity. It can't be altered. It can't be undercut. And if you're a believer and you're a follower in Jesus, um, you need to make investments and deposits where your inheritance is. That makes sense? Make investments where your inheritance is. Your inheritance on this earth will someday be given to somebody else. Your inheritance in heaven will only be given to you. Can't rust. 
It can't be corrupted. Moths can't get to it. Every investment in Christ will never fade. That's why um, it was Hudson Taylor who said he wanted to make, no, C.T. Studd, he wanted to make all his investments in the bank of heaven. It will be eternal. It will be everlasting. But understand that we're not only investing and looking towards inheritance. We have an inheritance in Christ right now. We have an inheritance. You can have joy right now. You can have peace right now. Everything the world is trying to buy, find, get uh, some sort of satisfaction, you actually have what money can't buy. The inheritance is not just in the future. The inheritance is right now. The peace that surpasses all understanding. I want to close with uh, the author was unknown, but I love what uh, whoever wrote this. I found it, and I don't know, again, who wrote it. It just says author unknown. It says, if I look at myself, I am depressed. If I look at those around me, I'm often disappointed. If I look at my circumstances, I am discouraged. But if I look at Jesus, I am constantly, consistently, and eternally fulfilled. Why? Because through faith, he gives the inheritance now of peace and joy, later of the eternal presence of heaven. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the mercy and the grace that was poured out on the cross. And Lord, even this morning as we'll we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're so grateful that we haven't earned these things, but we receive them simply by saving faith, by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we are partakers of this inheritance. And Lord, as we look to you, we don't have to be discouraged, depressed, or downcast. We can look at you and already the inheritance that's in heaven flows through us by your Holy Spirit.